This is not the media. This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. And yet another reason this is hell is you are not going to win an online argument with anybody when it comes to climate change. No, the pursuit of truth that is science will not protect you from the inaccurate falsehoods that are not backed up by any evidence whatsoever. Sure, you'd think what we understand of the known world would insulate us from wild ideas made up by those who have no training or specialty in the scientific field they are criticizing. But ain't that ain't how the online world works. Platforms are not interested in dealing in truth. The veracity of a statement posted online is not what gives it value. What gives it value is clicks and shares, not its actual content. When the algorithms are turned on us against us, no longer simply tracking us, but guiding us and imposing an algorithm upon our lives, determining what is and can be what we call social media appears to be incredibly antisocial. That platform capitalism, which markets not in whether statements are true, but only that they exist, creates a post-truth lack of reality wherein nothing and nobody can be trusted. That loss of trust in everything and everybody is what might doom us all. That is, unless we can come up with an alternative anti-capitalist online platform that doesn't view all users and their ideas as commodities to be bought and sold, instead seeing a commons where we can freely share and exchange our ideas. We'll talk science in a post-truth world of online media when we have the return of sociologist Bram Boucher, who is the author of The Truth About Nature Environmentalism in the Era of Post-Truth Politics and Platform Capitalism. Bram is professor and chair of the Sociology of Development and Change at Wageningen, University and a visiting professor at the University of Johannesburg. Brown is also the author of Transforming the Frontier, Peace Parks, and the Politics of Neoliberal Conservation in Southern Africa, and co-author of The Conservation Revolution, Radical Ideas for Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene, which we discussed with Brown and Robert Fletcher, his co-author, back in February here on This Is Hell, an interview that you can find on our website, thisishell.com, by just searching on Brown's first name, B-R-A-M. Find out more about Brown at Brown Boucher. Dot com. That's B-U-S-C-H-E-R.com. Follow Brom on Twitter at Brom Boucher. We'll also give you this week's Hangover Cure, tell you what happened last week on Patreon, what's going to happen next week on pa- or this week on Patreon. We'll tell you what's happening this week in Rotten History. We are announcing two more titles on our annual list of favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell throughout December. During our final episodes of 2020, we have been sharing a title or two from our list of 12 favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in interviews with their authors. And over the holidays, while we are off, we will be playing those 12 interviews. So check back here at thisishell.com starting on Monday, December 21st, when we will be playing the 12 interviews featuring our favorite books of 2020, one each day from beginning on Monday, December 21st. That's the 12 Books of Hell, beginning Monday, December 21st, here at thisishell.com. One book interview will be played each of those days. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. If it's Tuesday, producing must be Jess Lipka. Jess, how are you, sir? I'm good, Chuck. What are you going to do for the holidays? Do you have any plans whatsoever? Um, yeah, I'm seeing family, um, which is just in Chicago, so I'll be here. 
So just coming up here to the north side from the yeah. south side, that's it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Are you going to crash up here? Are you going to get wasted up here and crash up here, or do you go home? <laughs> um, I'll probably stay. So all my roommates are leaving, so I'll probably stay up here for at least a day, I think. Because there's no reason to yeah. be here. There's yeah. nobody down there. <laughs> my plan for the holiday is to sleep. Yesterday I couldn't make the show because I was so exhausted. I couldn't keep my eyes open. Sitting up was a real challenge and I couldn't think straight after three straight nights of not being able to sleep my body just shut down and I passed out exhausted from exhaustion so my plan for the holidays is to relax and sleep as much as possible and I just remembered before today's show right before the pandemic hit my doctor and I were trying to figure out why I was getting these constant spells of dizziness it was just repetitive we thought it was Allergies was the last thing that we were trying to, to blame it on. And uh, I'm not allergic to anything except for sulfa drugs, so that isn't the case. So I don't know what's causing that dizziness, and I'm not going to know until I see my doctor again, and I don't know when I'm going to see my doctor again. I guess more importantly, Jess, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what is the best thing that happened to you in 2020? (laughs) What is the best thing to happen to you in 2020? What is the best thing to happen to you in 2020? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins. Your chance of whatever This Is Hell swag you want, you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you uh, can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Is that the question from hell? It's what's the best thing that happened to you in 2020, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Why I, do I have 2021 in my script here? <laughs> I have no idea. Kind of, how what the hell would you know what's the best thing that's happened in 2021? That, that was in the email that I got to, but on the Facebook, it's 2020. Okay. All right. So it wasn't my mistake. All right. I was like, what the hell? Maybe Alex uh, switched it up on us, which would have been a great question from hell. What's the best thing that happened to you in 2021? But the question from Elle is, what's the best thing that happened to you in 2020? What's the best thing that happened to you in 2020? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Elle at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to me. Chuck at thisishell.com, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is, what is the best thing that happened to you in 2020? Uh, Let's see. uh, Anything else? Yeah. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Jess has this week's hangover cure this week's hangover cure um yes a couple weeks ago the hangover cure was not coffee that coffee does not work as a hangover cure however that claim is apparently disputed in an article at stylist.co.uk helena gibson moore nutrition scientist for the british nutrition foundation claims coffee is a hangover cure the story reports good news while some people say that coffee and tea can make hangovers worse because the caffeine is believed to be a diuretic Helena says that they can actually help with rehydration on a hangover, and as alcohol can affect our sleep, it is also useful to get you up and alert the day after you day after a drink. That makes this week's hangover cure what we told you was not a hangover cure a couple weeks ago, 
and what we're still uncertain if it is a hangover cure or not. Coffee. I have no idea if it's a hangover cure or not. No clue. For some reason, uh, my ability to actually hang a hangover, have a hangover, went away a couple of years ago, and it's really disturbing because it's not uh, governing my drinking as much as it used to. Putting profits before people since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways to help out your friends here at Completely Listener Supported This Is Hell. Sure, you can get the This Is Hell winter cap, face mask, t-shirt, trucker's cap, or tote bag, or the enamel steel camping This Is Hell coffee mug to show your support, or the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive containing dozens of interviews from the past 20 years. But you can also become a subscriber to the This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. All you have to do is subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can now find over 150 Patreon podcasts right now. It's like an additional year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else online but on Patreon. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, What we've been warning you would happen after Joe Biden was elected has happened, and that is Biden's backers are acting very much like always Trumpers, and it's getting really ugly really fast. Any criticism of Biden whatsoever is met with claims that the critic must be a Russian troll or an undercover Republican or a Marxist or an anarchist or a person who supports everything Trump ever did in office or before, including assaulting women, sexually assaulting women. If you criticize Joe Biden, you support Donald Trump's sexual assault on women. We knew that the moment Biden got elected, establishment Democrats would immediately be telling everyone to get in line behind Joe and abandon all hope of getting any real change done during his presidency. Just be content with the fact that he's at least better than Trump. That's what we're being told. And sure enough, a kind of muting of dissent that during Obama's first year in office ended any hope for justice when it came to being lied into a war and the Bush administration creating a global torture program and destroying any chance at a real universal healthcare system. That's what happened when we shut down dissent the first time. That's the, what happened in 2008, 2009, when we shut down criticism of the incoming Obama administration, and the same is about to happen. Also, I described during last Friday's Patreon podcast how the Democrats are telling us again to shut up and get in line. We also continue our series of interviews from right around 12 years ago, shortly after Barack Obama was elected president, to remind us all of what people were thinking and saying the last time a member of the Democratic Party became president to save us from what we were told were the horrors of the Republican Party and conservatism. So we shared our interview from Valentine's Day 2009. We spoke with the late, great, and always cranky William Blum. William had just posted an article at The Nation called Obama and Empire, wherein William argues that Obama's love for empire would be a prominent aspect of his administration, and William, no matter what a crank he was, was correct. Obama didn't end Bush's wars. He expanded them. To hear how Biden backers are acting very much like Trumpers and why the forever war did not end under President Obama, Subscribe to This Is Hell's weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell and tune in every Friday morning at patreon.com slash thisishell at 10 a.m. to hear the live stream of the Patreon podcast, which is then posted shortly after. And you're going to want to hear, you're going to want to do that because this Friday on Patreon, we are concluding our series of interviews we did just after Obama took office with a talk we had with a leading economist on what Obama 
really needed to do to address the financial crisis of 2008 if he did not want another crash like that to ever happen again. In other words, what Obama didn't do but should have done in the wake of 2008. And as we will be sharing our final quarterly review of what we have learned here on This Is Hell Tomorrow, covering the final three months of 2020 and everything that we have discussed on Patreon Friday, I will be sharing my own year in review of all the stupid things I said on social media. But you can only hear all of that by becoming a Patreon subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Capitalism is the virus. And yes, This Is Hell, the ninth title to make our list of favorite books to be featured in interviews with their authors on This Is Hell in 2020 in no particular order is The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation and Mass Incarceration by Aya Gruber, punishing men for committing any kind of violence against women. That's a no-brainer. Any man who would violently assault a woman should have the cops called on him, have him hauled off in handcuffs and thrown into jail. Sure, our carceral state continues to grow. More and more are being thrown in lockup, cramming inmates in, which is not the greatest idea during a global pandemic. But these men need to be punished. It's as if the impetus behind the Me Too movement that finally brought the heavy hand of the law against predators is suddenly at odds with the challenge to mass incarceration and police power that is the Black Lives Matter movement. When we spoke with Io, we learned how something called carceral feminism came about and what it means for women's rights. That makes the next book on our list of favorites to be featured on This Is Hell in 2020, Aya Gruber's The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. The next and 10th title to make the list of our 12 favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell with their authors is also about crime. It's Stranger Danger, Family Values, Childhood, and the American Carceral State by Paul M. Renfro. Stranger Danger apparently is a con, scam, a ruse to impose upon potentially revolutionary kids a system of surveillance and control in order to keep those brats in line with a Status quo. No, there's no roving packs of gay pedophiles scooping up children off the streets in order to force them into white slavery or worse. Stranger Danger is all a lie made up by 1970s homophobes who were freaking out at the expansion of civil rights for everybody. But that's all in the past, right? Except it's not, as those kids who were forced to repeatedly visualize being abducted, sexually abused, and possibly murdered at a very young age, those children who were told a horror story that rarely, if ever, happens, then grow up, had kids of their own, and told the same false stories, the same lies to their kids, who now also live in the same fictionalized fear that is way too real for them. I mean, sure, child abductions happen, but it's not stranger danger. 93% of abductions are done by relatives or friends. So it's really family fear or friend fear that should concern any parent or child. Worse, the punitive carceral surveillance-based nature of Stranger Danger has had an indelible legacy on an entire justice system that has normalized our current police state, all of which makes Stranger Danger Family Values, Childhood, and the American Carceral State by Paul M. Renfro the 10th title on our list of favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2020. 
This is how the last place where you thought you would get a good gift suggestion. Coming up, why the truth of science doesn't win online debates. We'll also have Rotten History and tell you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell. Believe in science. Science is real. Science is the truth. So why doesn't it win every online debate? Why isn't the truth about science and our climate-changed futures spreading like wildfires, the kind caused by climate change, and instead falsehoods about why, for instance, those fires happen spread just as fast, if not faster? What happens to science in an online world where truth is not what matters when it comes to commodified information. Here to help us understand why science fares so poorly in online debates, returning to This Is Hell sociologist Bram Boucher, is author of The Truth About Nature, Environmentalism in the Era of Post-Truth Politics and Platform Capitalism. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Bram. Thank you so much, Chuck. It really is great to be back. Find out more about Brahm at BrahmBoucher.com. That's B-R-A-M-B-U-S-C-H-E-R.com. And follow Brahm on Twitter at BrahmBoucher. So you write that the two popular hashtags, climate truth and facts of wildlife, are meant to communicate the correct status of the environment and to push for its conservation. Communicating environmental predicaments is not easy. Doom and gloom, a favorite mode of conveying environmental crises, can lead to apathy rather than action. On the other side, being optimistic about where things are heading and focusing on positive success stories seems naive in the face of current environmental realities. And while both styles remain popular, it might be better, many seem to think, to concentrate on facts and truths. But as you point out, communicating facts and truths is becoming increasingly difficult with growing skepticism of what is a fact and what is true. What connection is there, if any, between skepticism over truth and facts and denialism when it comes to climate change? Did climate change denialism beget fake news? (laughs) Very good question. Um, Well, let me rephrase it a little bit, Chuck, and then maybe come back to your question if if if, if that's okay. So, um, for many environmentalists, right, we're in a really crucial crucial kind of kind of age where they where they really believe we only have so many years or so many months or whatever to, you know, to to really tackle the environmental crisis that that we're currently facing, uh, particularly the climate crisis, but also biodiversity. And, and many, many related environmental crises. And so they, they really want to focus on, you know, getting the word out, making sure that we all understand how serious the problem is and, and what we need to do to, uh, to, to turn things around. And so these new kind of platforms are, of course, you know, important communication tools to, to, to reach people and to try to find ways to... Um, to, to, to get their message across. Um, at the same time, you know, they find themselves confronted with this, with this kind of post-truth moment, right? Whereby many people think that, you know, truth and science and facts, et cetera, don't matter anymore. And, um, and we need to, you know, give up on, on that notion altogether. Um, and so scientists are, are, are kind of fighting back, but they're fighting back in a way sort of like, 
that that use these platforms to to get in on the conversation to 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 promote truths and 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 their science in all kinds of ways in all kinds of incredibly creative ways i must say in my research i found like incredibly creative ways in which they they do come back to that main point that that this is a fact this is this is the truth about nature and we need to get it out there and get people to 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 come uh, to come on board in order to yeah to fight this kind of denialism and to fight this um you know this 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 post truth uh, moment uh, but the point is i think if as you you know kind of pointed out earlier as well already that facebook and all the other social media platforms handily profit from both sides right whichever side you're on on the denialism side or you know you're trying to tackle that by promoting truth um facebook will you know will gladly take your data will gladly commodify your data and sell it to the highest bidder. What's the line between, because we want healthy skepticism, science depends upon healthy skepticism. So what's the difference between healthy skepticism and the kind of skepticism that can lead to fake news? How do we determine the difference between those two kinds of skepticism? Yeah. So I make a differentiation in the book between uh, speaking truth to power and speaking fact to power. So I think it's important to 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 be clear about you know what I actually mean here with with truth and 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 to actually sort of define and operationalize or or conceptualize truth in a way that that sort of you know makes broader sense. And and how I how I do that is um, uh, by 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 distinguishing distinguishing it from fact, right? So facts are things that are true, outside of context, history, and and different people's position in in these in in matters. So outside of context, history, and 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 positions of different different people in relation to to where they are in life or where they are on the planet or you know how they think about politics etc. Et, et so truth actually tries to take these kind of things into account um, and still say something a little bit more broadly than just it depends, right? Then 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 that is all equal. So so it, it tries to find something a little bit broader than um than you know that everything depends on on on, on the, the eye of the beholder. But at the same time with a good feeling for the context that we're in for histories that we come from and for how people may relate to that. And I think that that could be an answer, uh, I think, to, to, your, to your question, um, because that means that the search for truth, A, means that you, that you can't necessarily find anything. It's, it, it is a continuing search uh, on the one hand. Um, and B, that, that you just don't, you know, that, that, that it's kind of useless to keep throwing facts at power, right, or at the powerful. Because you know they can shrug it off with with other facts or or with contexts or histories, you know that you know put put these facts in a very different light, and they can they can they can be easily ignored, and so this kind of skepticism, I think, um, you can actually break through that skepticism with this kind of search. How to communicate that? That's another question. <laughs> that you know, of course, that's the next step. So, to what extent does this idea of believing 
in science. To what extent does that contribute to the complexity and complications of understanding truth when it comes to science? Does belief contribute to the problems that science has with truth? I think so. Um, of course, it complicates things because I think many people hold dear to their beliefs, either explicitly or, 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 or implicitly, and belief systems, right? Whether religious or, or otherwise, I think you know neoliberalism in, in many ways is also a belief system. Uh, many economic, you know, or other ways of thinking are also belief systems in, in, in many many ways. Um, determine what you kind of see in the world and what you what you don't want to see or what, what you emphasize uh, in the world. Uh, and again, that's why I gave that kind of definition of truth, you know, not as something that is just very solid, right? Facts can be quite solid, right? If I drop, uh, drop, my, um, drop my mouse here from my computer, right? The likelihood is that it will kind of fall, right? I mean, gravity is a fact that, 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 that very few people even if you don't believe in it, not a lot of people, you know, subsequently jump off of buildings because most of them kind of know what, what will happen. So there is solidness, right, to, uh, to facts uh, in, in different ways that, that, you know, depending on which they are, this one, you know, this is, of course, a quite an quite a obvious example, um, but that, that, that people may or may not, you know, relate to, you know, or... or or, or live up to or act on. Um, truth, as I said, is different, different from fact because it combines both these more solid kind of statements and more slippery, more shifting kind of, you know, constructed kind of, kind of statements. So for me, it's both at the same time. Um, uh, and, and in that sense, um, belief systems are important, but not the only thing. And I think this is also what, what a good scientific effort actually and why it can make a difference because you turn belief systems on, on themselves and, and you try to continue to be critical that things can also be otherwise. And of course, you know, the whole point about belief systems is that you don't do that, that you want to have some pillars that, that are unquestionable because, you know, you need to believe in that. If not, then, then, then you're not a good believer. And you want people, you want to act on that information. You want to act on that truth, even though that truth is based on, again, context, history, people's positions in the world. So that that truth may vary from place to place, from history to history and from different perspective to different perspective. But it's still that is a truth, even though it is limited to that history, that perspective and that context. You write the idea is that once people understand the truth, they are better educated and will do things that make a difference for the environment. That is the idea, the hope that being better equipped with more accurate information will lead people to act. But to what extent can they act with any success? Is there a lack of will, even when people have this information, or is it simply a lack of resources? Is it, is it more about power relations than it is about political will? So just to be sure, like I, I, I'm not the one to 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 argue that, right? That you have, if you have better information or the truth 
that that you can make you know necessarily better decisions that you know this is something that that, that i that i talk about you know in terms of environmental organizations and how they sort of fit in, in into the picture um for 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 me i think um so on the one hand i i do say yeah truth is not completely up to the eye of the beholder because then it would be a useless concept then it could just be the same as you know uh, a belief system or 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 anything else um but for me it 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 takes into account those elements context history different positionalities and tries to transcend them at the same time and this is indeed where power comes in so um without going into a total you know theoretical um uh, on a, on a, th a total theoretical slant here um you know michel foucault who is one of the most famous philosophers obviously to to have theorized the relations between truth and and and, and power and has a lot of things to say about that is often sort of um seen as somebody who who only and merely sees truth and power you know as as interconnected and you can't get out of those but but in in sort of revisiting that and rethinking that I came to the, to his very last lectures, the very last lectures in the last year of his life in in, in 1984, uh, just just months before he passed away, and he also talked about how not just truth is always power, but that there's power in truth. That 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 speaking truth to power can actually transcend, help us to transcend hegemonic forms of power that 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 we currently face. Uh, and, and that we need to confront in order to make a difference. So this is for me also important in terms of your question of how we can act, right? We can act in all kinds of way. We don't need to necessarily need all these big words and or to do all these philosophical things in order to act. You know, we can act in, in many different ways, but in one way or another, our acting will be guided by, by, by how we, you know, what, 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 what we know about the world, how we theorize the world, what we believe in, in, in the world, and 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 how we confront power in the world and if we want to confront power which is i think an incredibly you know pardon the pun but powerful way of acting um is that we need to say something truthful about this power and the current and this is where i sort of pointed at the book the, the current form of power that that we're confronted is this kind of platform power right that turns our ideas about truth about facts and about belief systems totally inside out onto back onto ourselves and profits off of everything and anything uh, in relation to that and so we need to be able to 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 also analyze that and you know kind of see that as, as, as an emperor that that we need to start stripping in order to um and i th i mean that sort of quite literally right so what's going on in the us right now where they say where they where they're actually when where different states are confronting Facebook and say that it needs to get rid of um, WhatsApp and uh, and other uh, platforms, uh, that that's part of stripping this kind of kind of power, so that it doesn't have you know an insane amount of ways to collect data about us and 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 sell that to to advertisers, um, and so that is also a particular. Uh, way of acting it's not the only way but i think in this particular point in time environmentalism and that's one of the main books main points i make in the book environmentalism has come to a point 
where it needs to confront this new emperor, where it cannot make a headway in terms of tackling the multiple environmental crises that we're in, unless it also tackles platform capitalism, unless it also tackles these social and new digital media platforms and democratizes them. And when you talk about these algorithms, you mentioned how, sure, there's the algorithms where you are being tracked for marketing reasons in order to sell whatever product to you. But you also talk about how algorithms in the future could be imposed to guide us, that they're not going to be just this kind of thing that's tracking you, that's following you, but is actually guiding the way in which you might uh, exist in online media. How, how would our lives be different when the algorithms are no longer just tracking us, but guiding us? Well, this is already happening, uh, Chuck. Uh, so last year, of course, uh, early 2019, um, Shoshana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, came out. And she actually makes this makes this point. And, and, and several other people have been making the point also before, but, but especially also since, since then. But she makes it in, in, I think, a very, very convincing way. And the basic element is this, right? That... For these platforms to be able to give advertisers the kind of value that they want, right? To be able to see how people behave so that they can target them, they can micro-target them in order to sell their, their, their stuff. They need to be able to know what these people are going to do. So if people are completely um, all over the place, completely unpredictable, it makes it a lot harder to, 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 to know when to put which advertisements to them in order to influence you know, their, their, their choices. And so what, what Shoshana Zubov actually very convincingly argues is that we've, they, they've actually made this shift from tracking people to you know, increasingly manipulating people so that you, know, you can in advance already know kind of what people are doing, where they're going, why they're doing certain things, and um, target them with appropriate advertisements in order to make more money. It's the creation of demand, which is just fascinating. You write the rise of post-truth politics and the specific mode of power this represents demands that we rethink the dominant engagement with truth. Post-truth, contrary to popular conceptualizations, is not some new word for age-old traditions of lying or bullshitting. It is also not following the Oxford Dictionary definition of emotions trumping facts in politics and public debate. So is post-truth unlike any other political strategy or use of power that we have seen in the past? And if so, how is it different? Because I don't, I don't know if people really grasp how powerful and how different and how unprecedented this is. Yes. So th this is one of the main kind of statements that the book is trying to make, that yes, post-truth is new, it's different. And how is it different? It's tied to platform capitalism is tied to how these platforms work. It's not just some kind of new form of lying. It's not just some kind of new form of bullshitting, but it's actually a mode of power in and of itself. So let me just try to explain that very, very briefly. So lying uh, basically is, you know, that somebody, a liar knows, knows the truth, but doesn't want you or somebody else to know the tr truth because you know, they have something to hide or whatever. Uh, bullshitting is, is, you know, as Harry Frankfurt pointed out, is that 
you know, somebody doesn't really care about whether something is a truth or, or, or lie, um, as long as they get attention or, or other things. Now, post-truth is, in my opinion, literally beyond truth. It's, it's lit like literally it doesn't matter anymore for the algorithms, right, that make the platforms go round, that, 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 that make these platforms function. So, you know, and platforms can, can profit off of any truth or any lie as well as any truth or any other lie um, in, the, in the process. And so it's actually tied to the functionality of how platforms work. And I think for me, this is absolutely crucial. And, and, and the reason I do that is that, so that, so that we, we can critically target this in another way. And we, we, we get to understand why we need to target platforms and this, this, this mode of platform capitalism in order to, to, to enable the way we, we, we do our you know, politics and communicate about the environment, um, et cetera, and, and, and hopefully you know, get, get a little headway in that. Um, so, 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 for, so for me, post-truth is a form of power. Um, I also build here on others who say that in a, in a context where algorithms you know, and platforms allow an insane amount of information to be spewed into the ether, into the cloud, literally on a, on a daily basis, it is, it is super hard for people to, um, to actually know what's going on and, 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 and to find their way through this. You hear so many different points of view. You hear so many, so many noise, noises going around. So either you find somebody, you know, to help you guide through that and, 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 and give you some, um, some guidance in, in, in all of this, if, if they can then do that. Um, or, uh, as many people do now, that, that they, 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 they sort of hide or, or, or get into niches, um, right, like, like online uh, bubbles. And this, of course, is, is very dangerous for a broader democratic process where you also need to listen to opposing points of, uh, points of view. Um, all that makes it easier for those in power. And I mean, we've seen this happening like right in front of our eyes over the last weeks, of, of course, where people in positions of power can just flood the information market with, with more alternative or whatever kind of facts in order to make for a lot of people, you know, the truth or any kind of idea about facts or whatever uh, crumble and, 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 get a, and profit from it. And even, even as Trump has not been able to get away with, you know, subverting the election, the fact that, I don't know, you, Chuck, you, you probably know better than I do, but, but what did he make off of the fact that he keeps on, um, keeps on, you know, contesting the election? About 170 million US dollars? That's an insane amount of money. <laughs> Yeah, it's an insane amount of money. And the thing that just confuses the hell out of me is why does the global information market promote misinformation and disinformation? Why would the market promote or reward any product that is a spoiled or rotten product? This is a bad product. So why does the market reward a poor product with profits? You're not going to have spoiled milk be rewarded by the market. You're not going to have that dairy stay open. So why does this uh, business stay open when it is distributing a poor product? 
Yeah, that's a key question. And the funny thing is that even um, hardcore venture capitalists are are now going, you know, into this question and starting to like think like, what the heck? Um, Roger McNamee, for example, was an early investor in, in, in Silicon Valley. And he recently published a book called Zucked. Um, you know, waking up to the to the Facebook catastrophe, and he actually makes this point, right? He, he actually makes this 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 very point that you're making, to say that why on earth, you know, is he still generating so much money? And the difference that he and many others are saying is that a lot of you know, like a lot of people don't realize how much psychology actually goes into creating this market, right? And how much psychology goes into uh, building these platforms to make use of people's um, people's weak spots in in, 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 in in this regard. And one of those is that people love hearing gossips. They love hearing you know things that are that, 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 that have a certain you know raucous tension related, related to them that, that somehow or the other you know lead to some kind of conflict or confrontation. And here is where you can see that that actually things that are are not true, are half true, are half baked, are you know spoiled milk, as you say, actually really demand a large audience, and it's 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 crazy, but also really frustrating, right? Like, how how do you get through all of this if you want to, you know, actually get a nuanced argument across? If you don't necessarily want to you know, get into a, a huge big fight today on Twitter and, and, and or another way have a serious discussion. Well, platforms are not built for that, right? They, they, they have been built to follow and, and boost those kind of things that get the most eyeballs. And, you know, these kind of things apparently do. And so hence you can profit from them. It's, it's crazy, but that's the situation we're in. And you also mentioned this vicious circle of environmental activists going online to fight for their cause, to try to spread information, to get people to be informed about the climate crisis and how they're doing it in online media that is actually contributing to the environmental crisis itself. Is post-truth the outcome of wealth and economic inequality and the inequality of power that comes with them. Is there a kind of, I mean, when you look at environmental activists who do not want to be contributing to environmental crises, but still they go online to fight for their cause, is there a kind of class war when it comes to these platforms and the imposition of post-truth on the masses to make them powerless? Is, is, there, is there a class war that's going on? Oh, wow. Um, yes and no. I think there's always a class war going on in one way or another, right? So the way I understand class is, 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 is people's positionality in relation to the, um, to, the, to, the, to the dominant accumulation processes, right? So, so, so what is your position in relation to that? And of course, you know, sort of a Marxian uh, way to look at this would lead to, you know, a, bifur a bifurcation, uh, you know, laborers versus capitalists. But obviously we, we, we know that, that, that and have seen that it's much more complicated than that. Some people labor in some places and, and lead and, and, and exploit people in other places. 
and with with the emergence of a political economy of the sign where you know discursive kind of forms of power have become really really important that, that you know this picture has been complicated even even further but still if you, if you bring it down to that then 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 obviously different classes relate to this in 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 very uh, very particular ways um uh, on the one hand what you see is that within dominant capitalist classes um there's a real there's a real struggle going on there's there's actually i mean almost a war going on between those who buy into this new form of platform capitalism and those who increasingly oppose it or who feel that they they are they are duped by it and one of the reasons for that is is that 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 and that's why i actually referred to uh, refer to the term platform capitalism rather than for example surveillance capitalism is because platforms organizationally are a way to 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 situate yourself in between different actors and everything that they want to do or consume or achieve right so if you want to go somewhere google maps if you want to if you want to see as a scholar how you're doing you know google scholar so so you know if i want to get in touch with my friends uh, facebook etc etc so 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 platforms get in between the things that 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 most of us want or want to achieve and 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 the outcome or other actors or 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 products or whatever or you know political information if you will so that is an incredibly p- uh, powerful uh, position to be in but it's also in between different capitalists it's between capitalists and consumers it's between all different kind of kind of kind of classes so in 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 in, in many ways i think it is it has actually fractured um class wars even more than i think they already were and it's also turned them upside down in a certain way whereby those that least benefit from the current system from 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 the way that contemporary capitalism works um actually you know like defend people like trump right so 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 things are kind of inside out if you if you ask me at this point in time when you're talking about class wars so when it comes to post truth what impact could that have on the larger concept that we have of trust for one another. What kind of impact could that have on the ability for us to collectively respond to a crisis that we all face, like a pandemic or climate change? What happens when post-truth may, what can post-truth threaten trust? I mean, yeah, it's devastating, Chuck. I mean, absolutely. It has a devastating impact. I mean, look at, again, the pandemic. Right. I mean, again, particularly in the in in the U.S., but also in in so many other in other in other countries, including in the Netherlands, where I'm from, where there are many people who think that the pandemic is still some kind of um, ploy, you know, made up by those in power who also like to drink babies' blood and God knows what. Um, so yeah, it it does actually. Um, diminished trust in society and it actually it actually fractures right the idea of thinking that we can have something in common and this is this is a really tricky tricky element in all of in all of the, the, this stuff around platform capitalism 
that it is a it it enables us to to be completely individualized uh, sort of as you know we we feel like we're being spoken to or regarded as individuals online we get the news we want right we 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 get the products and the advertisements that 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 relate to our interests so it's like we're we're unique individuals online and at the same time we are being commonized no that's not the right word we 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 are we are being put into sort of common brackets or groups right as individuals by these by these platforms so that they can market certain types of products and and, and goods and 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 ids to uh, to to us so we're we are i mean to put it a little bit more abstractly we are subjects but we're objectified in our in our individual subjectivity by these um by these platforms and this is an incredible incredibly powerful powerful thing to do we all think that we are somehow individually um important in in and through these platforms and yet whichever way we go it doesn't matter so much anymore because they you know platforms can still make make use of us and or channel that in ways that lead to certain bigger goals that they have set for themselves right either growth in revenue or um or what what kind of you know political and or other commercial interests pay them in in order to get their advertising across and so i i think that in and of itself really fractures trust um in 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 very foundational ways because we're losing the ability to think that that we can actually have a common reality that that we can i mean not just that we have lost the idea of a common reality but that we can actually have one that we can actually have something where we can and should agree on and build common platforms on to 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 change things and 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 to improve things for 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 the better for you know other people than you know the the, the top 1%. So what would you say to someone who argues that online media is not creating post-truth or post-truthers rather they have always existed it's just like with every other worldview out there it has found those who have always had similar interests does online media create a post-truth world or just finally bring it together so so i i would say that that i would respectfully you know differ in opinion <laughs> because if it's not anything different from lies and 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 or anything else that, that we've seen before then 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 why use the concept and why bother right we can just you know use the term lie or bullshit or or whatever so for me why is so important to distinguish these anti the notion of post truth to platforms is so that our focus of our critique becomes clearer right we can clear we can more clearly and in a way more truthfully speak about this new form of power and how it changes our lives how it changes our world and what we need to do about it in order to 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 resist this power and or change change things for the better so 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 the very fact for me that i make this plea is is about speaking truth to this kind of power right because i said post truth is a form of power on the platform capitalism so calling it that is a form of speaking truth to power and that is the starting point to be able to resist this power change this power or 
you know, move beyond it in one way or another altogether. You write the growing influence of new media and platforms on environmental action leads to new contradictions, including around age-old determinants of power, such as class, race, and gender. Is there a resurgence of classism, racism, misogyny? Is there a resurgence of those because platform capitalism reinforces older determinants of power like class, race, and gender? Are those, is the hate that we see on the right resurgent because of platform capitalism? Hmm. Um, I don't know whether it's a resurgence in particular, because I think these things have always, always been there, right? I mean, I I don't think we, we you know, class under capitalism could have ever, you know, you know, we always needed to to bring race and gender, age and and and, and other intersectional you know elements into the picture. So, I'm not sure whether whether platform capitalism in and of itself has allowed for this uh, this resurgence. Um, I think it may have boosted certain certain voices for sure, right? Like, so in a certain way, yes, but it's made it just. It, I think it's made it more open and 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 more able to organize in ways that perhaps they haven't been able to do before. Plus the fact that somehow or the other it, it garners attention because you know it 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 is even those that oppose it. Kind of look at it online because we 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 are puzzled. Like like why the hell do these people, these neo Nazis, you know why why the hell do they want to walk in the street like that anymore? Why why are they you know so emboldened in 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 this particular way? Not just because we have you know that there's a racist uh, president still, thankfully not for too long anymore, but um, at least this one. Um, I don't know, I I don't know so much about Biden's uh, politics in, in in that respect. Uh, I think he's a big improvement, you know, um, over Trump uh, in in that respect. But as you noted earlier in the in the program, um, there's also a lot of really problematic aspects with with Biden and the fact that, you know, more you know left wing progressive voices uh, don't really get you know their say in 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 the Democratic Party and 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 in the in the way of moving forward in in, in this next uh, next presidency, um, but. I my main answer to your question is is that it's morphing, right? So through this new form of power, forms of forms of racism are morphing and finding new avenues, finding new ways to express themselves. That that that, that and and they may get emboldened in in the process, but they but 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 they also may have you know hopefully uh, may 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 not uh, in certain parts and in certain certain places. So that to me would be an interesting question to actually pursue maybe in the next project. So uh, can there be online media? Can there be these social media platforms? Can there be such a thing that is not a fertile environment for post-truth? Is there a way that there can be a social media platform that doesn't ignore something because, you know, does not allow to, it does not allow itself to distribute a spoiled product? Yeah. So, so there are people thinking about this, thankfully, and, and, and experimenting with this at, at, at right at this moment. Uh, so there, there are folks uh, talking about platform uh, cooperatives, for example, um, there are folks talking about you know non-commodified ways in which you know data can be shared and 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 used 
in these uh, platform cooperatives. Um, there are, you know, uh, sort of more palatable um, alternatives to things like WhatsApp and, and Google. You have DuckDuckGo and, 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 and Signal and, and other uh, companies that, 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 that do not, you know, uh, that make a point that they do that, that that they want to have a very different model of using using this technology. Um, but I still so 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 I think there are important things that we can we can point at and, and that 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 really require um, more support, right? I think environmental organizations I would want to call for you know call them to to start supporting these these kind of alternatives. At the same time, my my input into that discussion is that I think that needs to come together with a broader critique of the political economy that we're in. So it's not only and just platform capitalism. Platform, platform capitalism is not all determining. It's not, you know, like it, it may be the newest way in which capitalism has morphed, but, you know, the more things change, as they say, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And especially, this is especially important for environmentalists Right? So many social media gurus and others, you know, they, they literally say that you know, it doesn't really matter anymore online, offline, it's all a blur, but it does to environmentalists, right? It's one thing to protect an online elephant. It's another to protect an offline elephant, right? It, 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 it's, it's a big deal for, for conservationists and for environmentalists. And so, um, you know, for environmental organizations, right, it's really important to put their weight, I think, behind these new forms of, uh, of, of technology development uh, tied to a bigger sort of platform that goes beyond, you know, uh, capitalist forms of conservation, which Rob uh, Fletcher and I talked about earlier uh, on, uh, on your show when we talked about uh, the conservation revolution and, and the idea of convivial conservation. And you can find that interview right now if you go to thisishell.com and all you have to do is search on Brahm's name and you will find the interview that we did with uh, Robert Fletcher and Brahm back in February. You can find out more about Brahm at BrahmBoucher.com. You can follow Brahm on Twitter at BrahmBoucher. He is author of The Truth About Nature, Environmentalism in the Era of Post-Truth Politics and Platform Capitalism. One last question for you, Brahm, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. As you know, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write a politics based on truth tensions, accepts truth as power, but simultaneously rekindles the art of speaking truth to power with one ultimate aim, building post-capitalist platforms to challenge and overcome platform capitalism and so open space for a more socially and ecologically just and sustainable world. So, Brahm, is it us or platform capitalism? Do we have to choose between whatever democratic institutions we do have and nature or the continuation of platform capitalism spreading post-truth, the end of trust for one another and the continued devastation of climate change? Do we have to choose between us or platform capitalism? Yes. <laughs> well, there's an we answer have... from hell. <laughs> yes, we have to choose. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we can't trust the platform capitalists to to solve any of these problems for us. Absolutely not. My research over the last 10 years, you know, makes it pretty clear. And that's the simple answer, Chuck. Yes. You know, we have to make choices. And in this case, I think the choice is pretty clear. So, but the solution, though, isn't you're not telling everybody just go kill all of your social media accounts and stop participating within social media, correct? No. No, but I am 
I am saying, and I'm I'm joining a bigger chorus of people that say we must radically democratize these platforms. They've become too big, you know, for their own good. Half of them don't even really know what they're getting themselves into, particularly around the world, right? As various documentaries also on Facebook have shown over the last years, uh, in Myanmar and other places around the world, where 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 they they're creating real havoc and getting people killed. Um, and and so so we need to we need to take the power of these platforms. They they need to they need to become public platforms so that they can actually start helping a to change the way these algorithms work. We don't even know how they work, right? That's a, that's a, that that's the, those are some of the best you know well guarded secrets in business today, uh, which is an incredible like Frank Pasquale actually points out an incredible contradiction because they want all of us to put all of our data and all of our lives online. No, we need to demand that we know you know, how their algorithms work and we need to make them publicly accountable so that platforms like that and other powerful platforms can actually start becoming a meaningful, right, shared reality, right, through which we can build, you know, common common platforms, you know, in another way, right, in a broader way, in, in a political way to tackle the other big, you know, <laughs> challenges of our time. So that that is what I would I would I would say about that. When I was reading your book, I kept thinking of how fire departments here in the United States in the 19th century were privatized, how they would compete against one another, how the whole system was not in any way about public safety and to the point where fire departments were actually going out and starting fires in order to create demand for fire departments. And I started thinking that 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 fire department, those fire departments, that's what online media is right now that they can be reined in but instead right now of going out and sharing information all they're doing is just spreading more fires brahm i cannot thank you enough for being on back on our show this is really a great conversation and you know that i'm going to continue to annoy you in the future to come back on the show awesome thanks so much chuck and and thanks to all of you all the listeners a real my pleasure real really my pleasure all right take care brahm Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. Jess, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are answering this week's question from hell so far. This week's question from hell is, what was the best thing to happen to you in 2020? Garrett S. says, not dying of COVID. (laughs) Jesus, low bar there. (laughs) Uh, Scott S. says, I bought a house and finally had secure housing rights before the pandemic really got underway and was able to give my best friend a less toxic place to stay right before lockdown. Talk about a just-in-time moment. Hmm, All right. Uh, Rich H. says, rice and beans. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Paulo S. says, farting on mute, duh. (laughs) Chris L., I was the gold medal pole vault champion in the Tokyo Olympics. <laughs> um, All right. Nick E. Uh, I forgot her name. <laughs> God. <laughs> Jesus. <Yeah. laughs> um, Garrett L. Uh, we got pregnant during our second uh, week COVID quarantine. There's only so much Netflix you can watch in two weeks. <laughs> uh, Zach N. Not one, but two negative COVID tests. Nice. Uh 
what was the best thing to happen to you in 2020? Dan K says, I got my foreskin reattached just in case. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Bradley R didn't seem weird for spending March, December, uh, hanging out in my house. All right. Benjamin C. Uh, Joel McHale asked me, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> that was the worst thing that happened to him last week. What the, what's this story about Joel McHale and him? We got to know more. <laughs> um, Aaron B. Sweatpants. <laughs> Adam A. Real answer. It was a hell of a year for music. Fake answer. All this coming together to beat a global crisis really restored my faith in humanity. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mark S. The car started almost every time. Almost. <laughs> almost. Nice. And uh, last, Ronaldo M. says, prove to myself that any schmuck can make a loaf of bread. <laughs> so uh, as far as sweatpants are concerned, we have been talking to our merchandise person about making This Is Hell sweatpants because we knew that everybody was going to need sweatpants throughout the pandemic. But now that we have a vaccine, well, you're going to need those sweatpants for another nine months because by the time that you actually get that vaccine... Yeah, you're going to probably wear out those sweatpants. We'll have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from hell is, what is the best thing that happened to you in 2020? What is the best thing that happened to you in 2020? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that is currently available at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But you have to have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In rotten history, December 17th, 1812, 208 years ago this Thursday, U.S. Lieutenant Colonel John Campbell led a surprise attack on Native American villages near the Mississinwana Mississinawa River. That's very hard to say. Mississinawa River in what is now northeastern Indiana. And you gotta wonder how much of a surprise it was that the U.S. Army was attacking Native Americans by 1812. I mean, probably set your watch by it. The territorial governor, William Henry Harrison, had ordered Campbell to destroy the Miami villages, Miami tribe, villages along that river as a response to attacks on two U.S. Army forts in the War of 1812, and I'm betting the attack was so popular it probably got this prick elected president. Over the next two years, some 600 mounted troops under Campbell's command struck at least two of those villages and were quickly met with a counterattack by forces of the local indigenous population. An estimated 30 to 40 Native Americans died and 40 more were taken prisoner, including women and children. 12 U.S. soldiers were also killed and 44 wounded. Campbell and his troops then marched some 80 miles through bone-chilling winter cold with prisoners in tow. By the time they arrived back at their base, 300 of the soldiers were suffering so badly from frostbite that they could no longer function as soldiers. Even so, the U.S. Army called it a victory. Campbell was promoted to full colonel, and Harrison would go on to be elected president of the United States 28 years later, only to die after one month in office. That's some victory. People ambushed, women and children killed or imprisoned, soldiers dying of frostbite. Yep. In U.S. history books, that's another proud American victory. In Rotten History, December 19th, 1907, 113 years ago, this Saturday, a gas and dust explosion ripped through the Dar coal mine near Jacobs Creek in southwestern Pennsylvania. 
Yes, it's another coal mine and rotten history because coal mines have a very long and documented rotten history. The blast killed 239 men and boys who worked in the mine, many of whom were recent immigrants from Hungary. Because the U.S. has a long and rotten history of putting immigrants in the most dangerous of jobs, even deadly ones. Some of the miners had just begun working there after losing their jobs at another coal mine a few miles away, the, the Naomi Mine in Fayette City, which had closed two weeks earlier when another 90 or 35 miners were killed in an explosion there. So my work blew up, and I no longer have a job. But the work site that might blow up down the road, that one's still hiring. Luckily, I got work. A board of inquiry later concluded that workers at the Dar mine had carried open flame lamps into an underground area that was roped off due to fire hazard. Somehow that rope didn't hold, but the board did not place responsibility on the Pittsburgh Coal Company, which owned and operated the mine, because the court never held mine owners responsible for their mines that were not only dangerous but deadly back in the... 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, and probably still will in the 21st century. They're never held responsible. After a two-year interval, the company would simply change the name of the Dar mine, reopen it, and keep it operating for another nine years. The explosions at the Dar and Naomi mines were just two of the accidents that helped to make December 1907 the most deadly month in U.S. coal mining history, claiming a total of 3,000 lives. We're number one. We're number one. That's Rotten History, and this is Hal Just. Please tell us who is on tomorrow's Wednesday show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Tomorrow's show, we have Lucy Delap on her book, Feminisms, A Global History. And then what about Thursday? And on Thursday is Avik Saha, General Secretary of Swaraj, India, on the National Farmers' Strike. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show is Jess. <laughs> Thank you, Jess, for producing. Thanks, Brown Boucher, for being on today's show. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>